turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time 3D and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling in architecture, dive into the new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. One of the things I talk about as defining unreasonable hospitality, I believe that hospitality is about feeling seen and how the best way to do that is not to treat people like a commodity, but a unique individual. And so in unreasonable hospitality, one size fits one. That is like one of the most profound definitions of hospitality in a restaurant is, I know that I'm feeling seen or I feel that sense of belonging, that general like profound sense of welcome. When I can tell that they're serving me differently than they're serving other people because they've taken the time to get to know me and they care enough to adjust their approach based on what they've learned. Welcome back to Context and Clarity, the place where authors, experts, and thought leaders come to have engaged conversations with entrepreneurial architects just like you. I'm Jeff Eccles, and every Tuesday afternoon on Context and Clarity Live, my co-host, Katie Kangas, and I, and our live audiences that join us from all across the internet, we all have a conversation with a special guest. Search for clarity around the things that matter most to you, the architect no matter what your context is. In this episode, we talk with Will Gadara, the author of Unreasonable Hospitality, the remarkable power of giving people more than they expected. We read Unreasonable Hospitality all the way back in January for the Context and Clarity Book Club. And for my money, this is another must read for architects. So it was a great opportunity to sit and talk with Will Gadara about creating unforgettable client experience. We are honored here today to have a special guest, and uh, this relates back to earlier this year. If you, if you are new around here, one of the things that we have done with Context and Clarity over the course of the last couple of years is have a book club, a monthly book club, and our book back in... Um, January, February, March of this year, I've lost track of time already, is written, was written by our guest today. And I think it's a very important book. Um, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And so we're going to have a really great conversation today with the author of that book. I'll tell you who it is. You already know who it is. You're watching the countdown timer, but we'll talk more about that author here in a minute. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. I am joined today by Katie Kangas. She is my co-host here on Context and Clarity Live. Welcome, Katie. Glad you're here today. Good to be here. Very, very excited. This is one of my favorite books from our book club. Excellent. Unapologetically. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nice. And I, you know, I'm with you on that. We were talking before we went live that we've, in, in my mind, through the course of the book club, we've had two books that I think really speak to for architects, small firm architects, small business owners, two books that have really spoken to the idea of 
what we would call client experience. One was Jesse Cole's Find Your Yellow Tuxedo, and the other is the one that we're going to talk about today. And of course, we have the author of this book today. We had Jesse Cole on um, last year at some point um, on the heels of, of reading his book. So if you're wondering how uh, you can provide a better experience, a more memorable experience for your clients, an experience that clients will talk about and tell their friends and colleagues and so on and so forth about, read Find Your Yellow Tuxedo and then read this book that we're going to talk about today. And of course, you will have the benefit of being able to go back probably on YouTube and find that conversation with Jesse. And you're here participating in this conversation today. So two really important books uh, that'll help you with your client experience. Let me introduce our guest today. Our guest today, I would say, is a creative. He's definitely a leader. He's certainly a restaurateur. Uh, one of his claims to fame, uh, if you know restaurants at all, is 11 Madison Park. Uh, very, It's a world-famous restaurant in New York City. In fact, at one point, uh, it was judged to be the number one restaurant in the world. And you could watch his TED Talk and find out what a hot dog has to do with one of the most famous, most fancy, if I can say it that way, restaurants in the world. A hot dog may have been a key to the success there. So we may talk about that today. He is also the author of Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect. And as I said, you need to read this book. Enjoy this conversation today. Will Gadara, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thank you so much, guys. I'm so happy to be here. It's, it's great, great to have you here. <laughs> it, it absolutely is. And like I said, I you know, I'm sort of fanboying here at this point, but we read your <laughs> book back in in January, February, whenever it was of this year. And as I read it, um, I thought this this is a book, certainly for restaurateurs or anybody in a in a service industry, which architecture is, but I think this is a book that everybody in our audience Everybody in our community needs to read because it's it really will help them understand how to do things for their clients in an unexpected way, um, in a memorable way, and uh, really provide an experience that the firm across the street is not providing. So I appreciate you writing the book. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's so fun to be here. You know, one of the one of the the lofty ambitions of the book was showing that hospitality should not be limited to restaurants and hotels that in fact any business can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry and so to get to to be with all of you is validation of the fact that that that's resonating in some way shape or form and it's also just fun because i love i love architecture and i've spent a good chunk of any money i've made on working with architects to remodel apartments that i then sell and do all over again so this is fun i feel like i'm with my people yeah well, I appreciate that. And one of the things I loved, and it's it just dawned on me, it's like the the voice, the voice. I I I consume books via Audible, and so you've you've talked <laughs> to me for hours about unreasonable hospitality. But one of the things I really appreciated were, um, or or was the story of your early restaurant experiences, going with your dad, um, putting on putting on the suit and or or sport coat at least, and and describing the space that you were in and describing the the uh, the spaces of some of the restaurants where you've worked and and owned and so on and so forth. So I can tell that there's a connection with architecture with you. And there's something about architecture where we try to design experience as well. And I see that in the way that you kind of set up rules in the way that you 
led your teams. You're trying to set up a structure um, for them to follow and and thrive within. And and with architecture, we we're stuck with just the walls and the interiors, but we try to let that resonate and influence people beyond what we can control. And I, I see that in what you've been working on. Yeah, I mean. You know, one of the things I always say is that in restaurants, the food, the service, and the design are simply ingredients in the recipe of human connection. But each one of those can play such an important role in creating the conditions wherein that connection can take place. And I think it's so beautiful when you see this intersection of architecture where it's not just beautiful for the sake of being beautiful, but it's also designed in such a way that it can bring people closer to one another. And there's plenty of design that does one and there's plenty of design that does the other. But when those two conflate, I, I think it's a very, very powerful thing. I agree. Yeah. And, and I, I love that idea of of those three being ingredients of of the whole, because I, I think that's a great analogy for our businesses. Right? We actually we talked about this this morning on a on a mindset show that I host every morning. And you know it's one thing to, you know, from the architecture architect's point of view, I guess, it's one thing to have great design skills and another thing to have great technical skills and, and, and another to understand the codes and be able to navigate the, the permitting and everything else. But at the end of the day, if, you, if that's all you have, and not, not to discount all any of those things, I guess, but if that's all you have, right, what are your clients actually going to remember? Right. They're gonna they're gonna remember the the what it was like to work with you. They're gonna remember how you made them feel. We were before we went live. We were talking about the Maya Angelou quote: uh, "People won't remember what you say. They won't remember what you did, but they'll make they'll remember how you made them feel." Apologies to Maya Angelou. I probably booted that somehow. But but um, but I love that. I love that idea of those things being ingredients because I think it is so true in the work that everybody does. If we're providing any sort of service. Ultimately, it's going to be how we make people feel that, that is remembered, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. When you look back, the meals I talk about having with my dad when I was a kid, the number of details I remember about them are, are, are so few. Right? But I most certainly remember the way that it either brought me closer to my dad or the extent to which watching the team at the restaurant do their thing made me even more inclined to want to spend my life pursuing that exact same idea. Um, I think the thing is, you know, we're in an experience economy and I think we all have this beautiful opportunity. And by the way, architecture, like working with an architect to design something is one of the most profoundly beautiful experiences. And understanding that at the end of that experience, you do have something that is, is a beautiful totem to remember forever. Like you're always gonna be able to look around your home and remember it. But I think one of the opportunities we have is to give people a story that they can use to tell over and over and over again such that that experience is easier to reconnect with and and by definition that it becomes one worth collecting. I think that goes right into Chris's question. Um, he was wondering specifically about your experience with architects. What made it a better experience as a client and, and where where can we be improving? I think, I mean, there's so many different ways to answer that question. I I've worked with great architects and I've worked with architects who I've really struggled with. One of the things I talk about is defining unreasonable hospitality. I believe that hospitality is about feeling seen and how the best way to do that is not to treat people like a commodity, but a unique individual. 
And so in unreasonable hospitality, one size fits one. That is like one of the most profound definitions of hospitality in a restaurant is I know that I'm feeling seen or I feel that sense of belonging, that general like profound sense of welcome when I can tell that they're serving me differently than they're serving other people because they've taken the time to get to know me and they care enough to adjust their approach based on what they've learned. I've worked with architects who they are there to design something that they will be proud of. And then I've worked with architects who so clearly believe that they are there to design with me something that I will be proud of, ensuring that they're going to be proud of it too, because if they're a good architect, they should be able to do both simultaneously. But there are architects where the design happens to me, and there are architects where the design happens for me. And that requires... I mean, I, I say the way I would describe it in a restaurant is serving the guests, not your own ego, not doing things just to say, look what I can do, but doing things because that is actually the right thing to do for the person you're serving. And so I'll give you some examples um, and I'll use restaurant metaphors and cross them over into architecture. One of the, one of the things that exists, especially nowadays, and one of the people always like to ask me. Is it harder running restaurants now that people have so many allergies? And I say, well, yeah, if that's your perspective. I was like, I actually look at it as a beautiful opportunity because people do have a lot of allergies or they're on all these crazy diets. And there are plenty of restaurants that make the guest feel embarrassed about having to ask for food to be created using the ingredients that they either can eat or are inclined to eat in that season of their life. Or there's restaurants that look at it as an opportunity to show that we care so much about making you happy that we're going to begin the conversation such that you don't have to. There was a season where I went to a restaurant and on the bottom of the menu, it said, don't tell us if you're allergic to something or if you don't like something. The food is what the food is. If you don't like it, leave. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I went back to our restaurant and we started every menu by saying, what are you allergic to? Do you have any restrictions? Is there anything you don't like? Anything you're not in the mood to eat tonight? We tried to make it as comfortable as possible for people to tell us what they wanted or didn't want. Because I don't care if I make the best piece of salmon on earth, if you don't like salmon, you're not gonna enjoy it. And so you can either be frustrated that people have preferences or seize on those preferences as an opportunity to give them an experience that they'll love more than any you could possibly give in the absence of serving them. With architects, so I, I don't know who, maybe everyone on this call is already perfect, but I've worked <laughs> Pretty with sure. where, let's say we're picking a pendant that's hanging over the table. They send you four options. And if you don't like any of them, now some people are just not comfortable saying they don't like something because the architect should know better. And if those are the ones that they've been presented with, you should like one of them. But if you have the confidence to say, I don't like any of these, can we keep on trying? There are those that make you feel like shit for saying that? Or there are those that get excited to learn more about why you don't like them and they want to engage in the process because yes, it's a little bit more work, but if the job is to give you a home that you are going to love, then I want to hear that you don't like them because that's the only way I'm gonna figure out exactly the thing that's going to bring you the most joy. And so I think one thing to actually start to answer the question after a very long aside is to invite feedback, to invite disagreement, to set the conditions early in the process that there's a safe space 
And when it comes to design, yes, you are the professional and we are the clients, but there is no wrong and there is no right. And in fact, the only thing that's wrong is if someone ends up living in a space that they don't love. So that's one thing. I just think creating the conditions and setting the rules and extending the invitations such that no one ever feels bad expressing their thoughts on an idea. I think the same holds true with money and how much things cost. Anytime someone's in a restaurant and they ask for a wine recommendation, it's always very important to me that my team does not pass any judgments about them. And if you want an amazing bottle of Barolo, a great sommelier should be able to point you to a $50 bottle that you'll love, a $200 bottle that you'll love, and a $1,000 bottle that you love. I've worked with architects where I end up feeling like a worse version of myself because I need to go back to them and say, I can't afford all the stuff that you want. And because you only presented expensive stuff, now I feel like I'm living in coach class because you almost grudgingly came back with an option that is more affordable or within my budget. And so again, I mean, those, those two things are different, but still within the same conversation. Hospitality is a dialogue. It's not a monologue. One of the things I, I talk about all the time with the people who work for me is how there's nobility in service. And if I don't, as a leader, articulate why the work is important, it's going to be impossible for my team to bring their most fully realized selves to the table on the bad days. I believe restaurants are important because we can help people celebrate some of the most important moments of their lives. We can conversely give them the grace if only for a few hours to forget about their most difficult moments. We can inspire people to be better versions of themselves through our attention to detail or from getting super soapboxy. We can make the world a nicer place by being really nice to everyone that walks through our doors. I believe in restaurants, we can create these little magical worlds in a world that needs more magic. Here's the thing though. Like, I believe that your work is so important because you're actually the ones creating the spaces where those worlds are built. And you're walking with people the road of some of their most exciting and vulnerable season, right? I remember when I designed my first restaurant and how, you know, it's all the money you've ever had. If it doesn't land exactly right, your dreams may never come true. And I know about service and food and hospitality and service and all this stuff, but yet there's this essential ingredient in that recipe that I'm relying on someone else to deliver for me. Understanding my expectations, the importance, uh, my fear, my hope, and holding me through that as opposed to judging me for it, I think is so important. Similarly, I mean, my first home, I designed with an architect. Like you talk about like the power of someone's home where you're actually giving them the conditions to build a beautiful life. You do that for people. But all of these things, it comes down to people. And if you're building spaces for people, make sure that you recognize how important it is to be fully human in the process of creating these places. I, I think that ultimately is, is incredibly important. I mean, my philosophy has always been when, when I'm working with, when I'm consulting with firm owners, with architects, I always say that, I think you, your job as an architect, you have one job as an architect, and it's to make your client's life better. This gets to that that one-to-one, right? But what does it mean to make my client's life better? I have no idea, right? It depends on that client. Um, so I, I think that falls squarely into what you're talking about. If 
you're bringing their dreams to life for their home, for their restaurant, for their business, whatever it is. Um, that, I think that's what you just explained, I think, is is exactly why this book resonated so much with me, because it's if if you as an architect are going to make that person's that that client's life better. Right. It's coming directly from what you're talking about now. It's coming from those connections. It's coming from those conversations, the vulnerability uh, of those conversations. Certainly. Um, like I would love to see a world where there's almost like that, like a very uh, structured onboarding session. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a different metaphor. Sometimes when my wife is clearly not having a great day, I can go in and try to fix it or whatever, or I can just say, Hey, what is the best way I can serve you right now? Ask the question before you do the thing or ask the question before you say, it. if I could design the first session I've had with every one of my architects, there would be a list of questions like, okay, how do you like to work? I want to get to know you and your process such that we can mesh really well from day one. Do you want to see a range of pricing options on everything? Do you want to see just inexpensive ones? Because that's super fun for me. I would want to hear enthusiasm that buying less expensive stuff is just as fun. And by the way, it should be. Like a great architect should be able to design some Thing more beautiful with less money than a bad architect should be able to design with more money. And in fact, one of the best quotes I ever heard about architecture was um, I was talking to this famous architect that we did a restaurant with, and he said the coolest thing he ever did was this house on a hillside in the mountains of Switzerland because there were so many restrictions that it actually forced him to bring his like the most creativity to the work. I would like reassurances, like don't worry, don't ever feel bad about hurting my feelings. You know, like if all of that stuff happened in the beginning, I think anytime you create structure and rules around a relationship, the relationship has a better opportunity to flourish. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate to expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 U.S. jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more today at ncarb.org. I think that's fun in the book because you do find all these ways to begin the client experience before they even come. You expanded outside of what was typically kept within the doors of the restaurant to do these onboarding efforts. Yeah. I mean, I think an experience begins and ends when you decide that it begins and ends. And too many people look at an experience in an overly conventional sense. And in doing so, they're limiting themselves dramatically. I think the moment you open the aperture to when the experience begins and when it ends, you ultimately give yourself an unfair competitive advantage because you're focusing on parts of the narrative arc that none of your competitors are ever pausing for long enough to consider. And I think it's also just fun to be creative and isolating parts of the customer journey and then figuring out how to elevate them beyond what anyone else has done before you. I think that's really interesting in the context of what I was talking about earlier. I don't know if you know Jesse Cole or if you've 
you're familiar with the Savannah bananas. You know, I, a few different people have started to make this connection and I, I, I feel like I need to spend time with them. <laughs> you do. You really, but because he's, he's talking about minor league baseball, you're talking about restaurants, but ultimately the, the intersection is, is the experience. And so, so they have, uh, the name of their company is uh, Fans First Entertainment. That's, you know, the umbrella that owns the baseball team, et cetera. And one of the things that they did was, it, it, just as you were describing it, they've expanded the idea of experience. For many of us, the idea of going to a baseball game might be buying the tickets online and then we show up at the ballpark. Or, or we might think of it in terms of showing up at the ballpark. But they, they have redesigned that experience, starting with buying the tickets, traveling to the ballpark, pulling in, parking, walking from your car, or, you know, from the, the train station or however you got there to the gates and, you know, and all the way back out and on your way back home. And I, I think that's exactly what you're talking about is they took it from from here to showing up to this this whole process. And I'll guarantee, you know, to second what you just said, that um, if you're an architect and you're worried that somehow expanding the thinking about experience is, is more expensive or, or takes takes more thought or more work or whatever it is, your competitors are not doing this. You know, someone who's consulted with an awful lot of firms, your competitors are not doing this. Um, and I do think it gives you a, a, a unfair competitive advantage, which you ought to take advantage of. Uh, that's that's my feeling on it. Well, yeah, I mean, and by the way, I, I just want to say this in all caps, bolded and underlined is expanding the experience, seizing on opportunities that no one else is seizing on. It doesn't need to cost a ton of money. Hospitality is not just giving more lavishness it's it's giving more thoughtfulness like i'll tell you this is like a very unemotional toolkit thing and maybe this is par for the course with with all great architects but i only experienced it for the first time recently when we finished a guest house up in the country the last thing they gave me were three binders with all of the information i needed about the house the paint specs by like organized by room everything i needed this compared to the last apartment that I designed in New York, where like three years later, I needed to get it repainted. I emailed the architect to try to figure out what the paint color was, because you guys know there's not, there's nothing, there's no white paint anymore. There's like a million versions of it. And they didn't even know, like, sometimes it's just the simplest thing that can go, you know, the, the, the furthest down the road. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious about some things that seem to be contradictions. You've got high end, but you took it casual. You made it personable. Um, also with a team, architects, we're always dealing with egos, both with clients, but also in our internal teams and how you had such a specific vision for 11 Madison Park. And yet you almost took a hands-off approach to be able to empower your team. And so how do you balance that excellence that takes such high control and just let go of that and trust. Let me, we'll start with the second one first, because that's something I, I actually think a lot about. And I, I think the answer to both is, is probably just being intentional about when you do one versus when you do the other. Yes, to your point, I'm as anal retentive and have as many OCD tendencies as almost anyone you know. I believe there is a right way to do things when it comes to service. I do. I believe there's an exact right way to put a plate down. I believe there's an exact right way to 
or a glass of water. I believe there's an exact right way to set a table. Every piece of silverware should be this far from the edge of the table. We would have our team literally put the chargers, the plates that are on the table when you sit down, just so, so that if the guest ever picked them up to look who made them, the logo would be facing them perfectly. Every single dish was prepared a certain way. I mean, I could just go on endlessly. That's all service. That is black and white. Hospitality is not black and white. And in fact, hospitality thrives in the gray. I would empower my team and not only loosen, but in some cases completely let go of the rain when it came to hospitality. There's a retired U.S. Naval captain, David Marquet, who said in most companies, the people at the top have all the authority and none of the information, while the people on the front line have all the information and none of the authority. I believe you loosen the reins and you relinquish control and empower your team when it helps bridge that divide. Um, to be clear, my team could kind of do whatever they wanted for the guest. And we gave them resources in the form of money and people to support bringing ideas to life. Um, I did not approve those ideas because if I did approve those ideas, two things, both bad things would have happened. One, they wouldn't have actually been empowered, um, which would have taken away half the point of the entire process. Um, but two, because it would have just been a bottleneck and we would have done a lot less things if they all had to go through my approval. Now, because I didn't approve them, two things happened. One, we did thousands of these things and probably about 5% of the stuff they did, I did not like. I just thought they were bad ideas. But two things, A, I'd rather do thousands of gestures and not like 5% of them than only do a couple hundred and like 100% of them. But two, of the 5% of the ideas that I didn't like, I bet 75% of them were still the right thing to do for the guests because maybe I didn't like them, but they knew the guests better than I did. They were on the front line. I wasn't. And so I had to trust that they were making the right decisions. And I mean, the more you trust people, the more trustworthy they become, the more responsibility you give people, the more responsible they become. And so that is how I always navigated through it. One, understanding that when it comes to the product, the food, the service, yeah, you should be aspiring for perfection. But when it comes to the way that product makes people feel, the hospitality behind it, you should be aspiring to be perfectly human, which by definition is perfectly imperfect. All of this reminds me, and I, you know, if we bring this back to sort of a business case, I guess, I mean, it's all a business case, but I think about your 95-5 rule. And we, we talked about this this morning as well. You can you can correct me where I get this wrong, but basically, ninety five percent of everything that you do, you're you've got the controls on. You're watching it to the penny, you've budgeted. You've you're paying attention to your cash flow and everything else. And then five percent, you go wild. <laughs> That's not your words, my words, but but five percent is held back to do the unreasonable, the unexpected, the memorable, etc. And I was thinking about that a lot. And I think, yeah, if, if we if we build a business, if we build an architecture firm, where we've got all the systems in place to do this, that, and the other. And a lot of these systems are the things that our clients are not going to see, right? They're, they're the operations that are happening behind the curtain, right, with the Wizard of Oz. But the 5%, wherever we splurge, wherever we go out and we, we make somebody feel special, that's those are the places that, um, or, or those are the things, those are the actions that are going to make people feel loved. They're going to make people feel special. They're going to be memorable. 
I thought that's that's a really great way to to me to balance this idea of hey we're in business we've got to be profitable we've got to do all these things but then how do we do this differently than everybody else is doing it and is that is that the approach yeah it, it basically the whole idea of 955 and by the way anyone can apply their own percentages to that based on your business model but it's to it's to ensure two things one you are not always optimizing for profitability and efficiency that you're giving yourself margin and grace to spend foolishly but it's not foolish at all because that spending is actually what leads people to never want to work for any with anyone else again. Um, and it's also to make sure that there's some discipline in the process too, such that you're not only optimizing for joy, that you have a strong business that you can continue doing business. Um, but I believe the 5%, you talk about the Maya Angelou quote, people will forget what you say, they'll forget what you do, they'll never forget how you made them feel. That happens because of the 5%, whether... That's how you are spending your money or your energy or your time. And by the way, having come from a world of excellence and artistry, it's the 5% that is always the most fun. There is no, I, I don't believe there's anything more energizing than seeing the look on someone else's face when they receive a gift you are responsible for giving them. That happens in the 5%. That's the fun part. And by the way, the, the amount of opportunities that exist for you all doing what you do in the 5%. You know, like one of the things, if this has never happened to you in a restaurant, then you're going to the wrong restaurants because it's like an old school trope in a restaurant where if you are wavering back and forth between two appetizers and you keep on going back and forth and you're asking the server about them, they should send you the other one that you didn't order for free. Like that's the easiest gift. It doesn't even take that much active listening. I think about that with all of you. I mean, some of the jobs you work on, they're big budgets, right? You're charging a lot of money to some of these people. You have margin to spend a little bit in return and to make an investment in the future of that relationship. If I'm looking at two pendants, sorry, I'm keeping my reference pendants because I'm sitting underneath one. And one is whatever, $1,000 more than the other, but I'm just at the point of the process where I just feel you've worked with plenty of people, right? You get to that point where they're just done spending money and they pick the slightly cheaper one, even though they really loved the more expensive one. Cover the difference. Spend $1,000. Every time they look at that light for the rest of the time they live in that house, they'll think of you. And by the way, every single time someone comes to their house and comments on how beautiful it is, they're going to tell the story about their architect who spent $1,000 to upgrade their pendant to the one that they truly loved but couldn't justify spending the money on. Now, maybe you say $1,000 is too much compared to the cost of the job, but find a different one. If you're building someone's first home, you're probably, or if you're building someone's next home, you're probably meeting with them a lot in their old home. Um, look in their fridge when they're not looking. See what their staples are. And the first time they get to their new house, have it filled with their staples. If someone's designed a yoga room, into the the house just put a yoga mat and a lovely candle with a note that says welcome to your new home by the way a the smallest thing i mean a candle and a yoga mat it doesn't cost anything no one can say that's not within their budget b the way it'll make them feel will pay that back in dividend and c it's fun it's just fun to do this stuff it makes the work more enlivening and energizing and so like if my, the whole reason I wrote the book, Unreasonable Hospitality, is because I just believe in the goodness of the world that comes if people 
are as unreasonable about the hospitality of their business as they already are about their product. If you take as much energy as you put into, if you're like architects I've worked with, picking bathroom hardware options towards a little gesture of unreasonable hospitality at the end, what you could all do would change the world. <laughs> I mean that. I think that's true. Those are those are excellent examples. Kurt says great ideas. I think they they really are great ideas. And you know, in your TED talk, you, you open up talking about Eleven Madison Park and how eventually you know you, you got you got to the ranking or the rating of of uh, uh, best in the world, number one restaurant in the world, and then you then you go right into talking about the hot dog. Right, the hot dog is is what got you over the hump, maybe is, is one way to say it. Can you tell us the, the hot dog story? <laughs> yes. Um, I wrote the words unreasonable hospitality down in a cocktail napkin after the first time I went to the 50 best awards when I, when I learned that we had come in last place in that first year. And I was really upset, right? Like I was all angry until I basically processed through the anger, got through the other stages of grief and got to acceptance. Because here's the thing. It's, it's, patently absurd to say that one restaurant is the best restaurant in the world. What that list acknowledges is the restaurant that's having the greatest impact on the world of restaurants at any given time. You look back, there's a restaurant called El Bulli in Spain where the chef pioneered molecular gastronomy and the techniques he developed in this little town have inspired how people cook around the world. Other restaurants did similar things. Those chefs were unreasonable in pursuit of the product they served and relentless in pursuit of how it needed to change. That night, I wrote on a cocktail napkin, we will be number one in the world because I believe you can talk things into existence. And if you want something badly enough, say it out loud in front of other people. But an idea without a strategy is nothing more than a pipe dream. And so that night, I also wrote down on that cocktail napkin the words unreasonable hospitality is what our impact was going to be. Because if they were unreasonable in pursuit of product and relentless in pursuit of how it needed to change, I wanted to be unreasonable in pursuit of people and relentless in pursuit of the one thing that would never change, which is our human desire to feel seen, cared for, welcome. But I had no idea what the words meant. And I, I think that's fine. I think far too often we spend so much time trying to perfectly articulate a goal that we never start to pursue it. I think if you have an idea and it's one that you feel enough of a connection to, you need to trust that as you pursue it, it will reveal itself to you more clearly along the way. And that's what happened because a year and a half after that award show, I was in the dining room one day helping the servers because it was busier than normal at lunch. And they needed help. And I was clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies, just basically people who were in New York on vacation, going to great restaurants. And they were on their way to the airport to head back home after their lunch. And I was eavesdropping. And they were talking about the great meals they'd had, per se, Danielle, Le Bernardin, Momofuku, now 11 Madison Park. But then someone jumped in and said, yeah, but you know, the only thing we didn't have was a New York City hot dog. And it was like a light bulb moment from one of those cartoons where you know the guy or girl has had a great idea. I walked as calmly as I could back in the kitchen, dropped off the plates, ran outside of the hot dog cart, bought a hot dog, ran back inside. Then came the hard part, which was convincing the chef to serve it in our four-star restaurant. But I asked him to trust me, told him it was important to me, and we cut the hot dog up into four perfect pieces, adding a little swish of ketchup and mustard and sauerkraut and relish to each plate. And before their final savory course, which was a honey lavender glazed Muscovy duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, I brought out what we in New York call a dirty water dog and explained it. Said, I want to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets. Here's your New York City hot dog. And, well, they, they freaked out. I mean, I'd served lobster, foie gras, wagyu beef, caviar over the course of my career. I'd never seen anyone react the way that they did to the $2 hot dog. 
athletes always go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they could have done better. They don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did well to make sure they keep on doing that thing. That's how you take these little like organic moments of brilliance in your organization and grab onto them and hold onto them and convert them from being just a passing moment of inspiration to a foundational element of who you are and what you do. Um, and so I went to the tapes and the hot dog. What happened? That it happened. What needed to happen so it started happening all the time? The, the first was being present. And I talk about this stuff in the TED Talk, but like for me, being present just means caring so much about the person you're with that you stop caring about all the things you need to do. Kurt here says it's also paying attention to the details, right? You need to be present to see the details. You need to be present to hear what people are saying, whether they're saying it out loud or not at all. If I hadn't been present, I never would have heard the throwaway line about the, about the hot dog. The second was this idea that we should take what we do very seriously, but we need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. And this is especially relevant to anyone in like the luxury space where we've created these brands, then they're important because there are bumper stickers to the world. But if the brand starts to dictate what you are and are not allowed to do, then it's become too powerful. We cannot let self-imposed standards get in the way of us giving the people around us the things that will bring them the most joy. As evidenced, a hot dog in a four-star restaurant is sacrilegious until you look at how it made them feel. And then the third, this idea that if hospitality is about making people feel seen, which I believe very strongly, then the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but a unique individual. I believe that I could have given the table a bottle of vintage champagne and it would not have had the same impact as the $2 hot dog because it would not have been specific to them. In unreasonable hospitality, one size fits one. Once we took this hot dog as our true north and those three things as the roadmap and opened up the opportunity to embrace that to the entire team, that's when we caught fire. And it was seven years after we came in last place that we ultimately became the number one restaurant in the world. Do not to our excellence, not to the caliber of our food or our service. That's why we got on the list in the first place but due to being relentless and unreasonable in pursuit of relationships, relationships with the people we worked with and all of the people that we collectively served. That's amazing. We're up to the top of the hour here, so I know we need to wrap this up soon. Maybe Jessica's question is, is a good one to, uh, to wrap on. She says, is season two of The Big Brunch in production yet? And how much fun is it to hang out drinking cocktails with... With Dan and Sola. We'll see about season two. The The whole world of television is kind of in turmoil between the writer's strike and all these different streaming services consolidating. So we're, we're, we're hanging tight on that. Although I was kind of grateful that there was a little bit of a delay because I had a new baby boy in February. And had we stayed on schedule, we would have been filming in March, which would have been a disaster. So it's all working out well. Dan and Sola and I had the absolute best time making that show so much fun to drink cocktails with them it was also really fun to show i'm a strong believer in how the best way to invest in the people that work for you is not through praise praise is extraordinarily important but it's through constructive feedback as well um, because as a leader being willing to step outside of your comfort zone for long enough to invest in someone else's growth is a pretty beautiful thing and i loved with the show, being able to show that culinary TV doesn't all need to be about tearing people down. You can actually see us on the platform to build people up. I am curious. You mentioned your son. And at the end of the book, I believe you mentioned a baby being born. 
Yes. So you're starting this whole next generation. In the book, you shared how much your family shaped you and your parents shaped your upbringing and it, the adversity you faced in that. And that resonated with me personally with health problems of one of my parents. Um, I'm curious, how are you going to instill what you learned in your children's lives? I think the same way that my dad did with me and the same way I believe is the best way to do it in any culture. I'm going to talk about it a lot. I think you can lead through actions. People always say actions speak louder than words, but words speak pretty loudly too. And I believe you can't replace actions with words, right? But like words need to work alongside actions because what gets talked about within an organization is what gets thought about. And I'm going to bring it back to family in a moment, but in an organization, people are looking to the leader of that organization to tell them what is cool. And that happens when a leader speaks with passion and enthusiasm in the most contagious way about the things that matter the most. And that's what I want to do with my kids is I want to make it cool to care, cool to be kind, cool to be gracious and generous, cool to say thank you and I'm sorry, cool to hang out with the kid that no one else is hanging out with. And I think that just requires talking to them all, of, all the time about what right looks like, giving them grace when they mess up and celebrating it when when they get things right. Hey, I know we're done. Before, I just want to say, we're talking about affirmation. John Jones, you are an unbelievable. You're very good at this. Yes, thank really, you, John. John is providing a service to all of us, including me. So thanks, John. You're great at it. Um, and this is such a fun conversation. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you. And again, thank you for the book. Thank you for the restaurants. Uh, you know, we only really talk about one restaurant, but there's uh, there's a whole list of them, obviously, throughout your career, and I know there are more to come. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. And and uh, I, I do want to give one more shout out to Christian because he he's the one that reached out to you through the the Cornell uh, alumni network and uh, and made this connection. So thank you to both of you uh, for playing a part. Thank you, Christian. Will, again, thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate you jumping on here with us and sharing everything. It's been a lot of fun. And I know it's a little different, uh, different conversation than maybe your typical, but hopefully that was enjoyable for you as well. It was great for us. Um, so we really appreciate it. Katie, as always, thanks for being my co-host here. And to all of you out there, I say this every single time, and I mean this every single time, uh, thank you for this opportunity, because if it weren't for you coming back week after week and for the three years that we did this every day, uh, if it weren't for you, we would not be having this conversation with Will. So uh, thank you for this opportunity. Well, what do you think? Did you hear something in this conversation that you can use maybe in your practice or even in your life? If the topic of this conversation is of particular interest to you every week, in the Entree Architect Network, I host the Context and Clarity Classroom. It's our weekly opportunity to take what we've learned from our special guests and put those lessons into action in your life and in your work. Find the Context and Clarity Classroom exclusively inside the Entree Architect Network at network.entrearchitect.com. And if you are so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to YouTube. Find the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. 
You can also have the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week. Just give us a rating and subscribe wherever you're listening right now. Your likes and your ratings and your shares all help us help other entrepreneur architects like you. And together, they help us build the largest worldwide community of small firm architects. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you're going to find something there that interests you. You can learn more at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. So thanks for listening. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about how you can build your business into something that allows you to practice the way that you want to practice. Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here.